I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Nora Loretto joins me now. She has just published a new book, Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic. It's a look at what she sees are the big missteps in the first 18 months of, the, of uh, Canada's COVID response. She looks critically at why long-term care deaths skyrocketed, as well as in workplaces like food processing plants that uh, affected the most vulnerable workers in the country. Nora also looks at how anti-Asian racism was stoked. Another aspect of the book that is particularly interesting is when she looks at the media's work. The media in this country has been uh, contracting even before the pandemic, and there were cuts even during the pandemic. Media outlets working with far fewer resources. As a result, there's little necessary scrutiny as to the information and data on the virus, infections, deaths, not to mention the money being spent on various schemes to help people and businesses. There's a call for accountability and responsibility so that we might be better equipped to get through this pandemic, not to mention future ones. Nora Loretto is a writer and activist from Quebec City, where she joined me from last week. She is the author of last year's uh, Take Back the Fight, Organizing Feminism in the Digital Age, and 2013's From Demonized to Organized, Building the New Union Movement. She is the editor of the Canadian Association of Labour Media and an opinion columnist who appears in many publications. She is uh, also the co-host of the popular podcast Sandy and Nora Talk Politics with Sandy Hudson. At No Lore is uh, the Twitter handle and the website for more is at noraloretto.ca. This new book is from Fernwood Publishing. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Nora Loretto. Ms. Loretto, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, as I was telling you just before we started, how much I uh, uh, was... Uh, well, enjoying is not the right word because it's not a gr- great topic to read about, uh, especially since we've, we've lived through it. Um, I'm curious to know, though, how did you come to write uh, this book? I mean, it, it, it seems like COVID has consume, uh, consumed all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, to take on a project like this would seem probably a lot more work than it seems. <laughs> yeah, so the project was conceived of in August 2020. At the time, I was just finishing up my last book, which was published in October 2020. Um, and it had nothing to do with pandemics. It's a book on, on social movement organizing and feminism in Canada. And By then, I had been collecting daily statistics on who was dying where from COVID. And I was the only journalist in Canada doing this work. And so every night, I would crawl through websites and public health information and, you know, obituaries even to Uh figure out who has died where. And so I created this data set of all of the deaths that I could track in in residential care. So, you know, long-term care and retirement residences and assisted living and hospitals and mm-hmm. in group homes and jails and shelters and, I mean, everything. Uh, and then also workplace deaths um, and broke those out based on healthcare workplaces and non-healthcare workplaces. So to finish that or to do that work, I'm not finished, of course, I still have to do it to this day. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was seeing a lot. I was reading a lot. And it hit me in August that if I would write something that was longer than a, a long article about what I was seeing in the stuff that I was reading every single day, that would make for a pretty compelling book. And so I pitched it to the publisher and they said yes, on the caveat that I shortened the timeline by six months, which is why it's out now. Mm. <laughs> and um, and yeah, you're right. It was very daunting. I, I, I slept, breathed, ate the pandemic to be able to write this book. 
um, uh, just, you know, just as a lot of other people have uh, had to as well, uh, whether because they live within one of these facilities or they work there or someone they love has COVID uh, or someone has long COVID. You know, it's, yeah. it, I think it's a common experience from this pandemic. So so when you were collecting the data on, on deaths, especially getting that number that, that, um, that we read about in the book and that, that we're, we're, we want to know about every day, how many deaths have, have happened or have taken have occurred um what were you finding or what what did what didn't you find in terms of what was being released as to, to how many people were dying every day mm-hmm. well that the answer to that question changed uh, a lot through the pandemic um and if we think of british columbia specifically you know it, it took until um uh, late 2020 like december 2020 before uh, the BC CDC started to actually release this information about who was dying where. So mm-hmm. before that, it was only up to the whim of whether or not a politician mentioned it or if a journalist found out or if one of the health units publicly reported it. And most were not reporting this information publicly. Um, and so, you know, that was just British Columbia. Multiply that across Canada. Right. And you can imagine that the data was in and still is in a completely chaotic state. There's, there's very little of it that's consistent. There's no national data set. And, um, and so to cobble together what I could, and other, obviously other journalists have cobbled together more regional um, look at, at who died where, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the best that we've got, and it's still not very, not very good. Uh, we know that there are tens of thousands of excess deaths that probably should have been counted that were not. And uh, it's anyone's guess as to whether or not that will change in the future. For, for the layperson, uh, what motivates, say, a government or an, a government agency uh, to not give us the number of, of people who've died? Yeah, well, I mean, I, there's one way. You can look at it as, as motivation, or you can look at it, and or, I think it's probably both, you can look at it as um, failures. Right, and so Canada famously has a dearth of data collection, like compared to comparator countries in the world. We collect so little data about things that it's it's shocking. And if you compare, not not talking about COVID, you compare how can Canadian police forces report versus American police forces. I mean, American police forces report far more information than Canadian ones do. The Canadian housing market and who owns what, that's way more elaborated in the United States than it is here. And on health data, it's the same thing. So there there are obviously a couple of federal health um, data collection agencies. There's Statistics Canada and Public Health Agency of Canada and the Canadian Institutes for Health Information, CIHI. But they're also at the whim of how good local data collection is. And local can mean provincial, right? And like, so British Columbia is is provincial level Mm -hmm. data collection. Saskatchewan is provincial level data collection, but their data is really, really bad. Um, But then you go to Ontario and the data goes really local. It goes into one of the 32 health units. And those health units might not even have a person who's responsible to do this on a a full-time basis. They might actually have other jobs to report as well. Um, and so, you know, even looking at uh, vaccine um, levels, I, I, I think I pull something like 68 health units in the country to look at vaccine reporting, and it's just like, wow, it is such a mess. And so, um, on one hand, that's that's not a, that's not motivated by anything. That's a question of the state of our data collection in this country. Mm. But on the other hand, 
there is a motivation to not make it better. And that motivation is because then people don't ever get the full picture of how bad a certain thing is in Canada. And that is the case of the housing market for policing for health. Um, and uh, and so when all of a sudden these daily numbers became part of our daily rhythm, average people's daily rhythms, and finding out how many new cases there were, how many more ICU uh, beds had been taken up, and how many more deaths, uh, all of a sudden you realize that we were never set up to have this level of detail on on pretty much anything in Canadian society. And when it matters the most, you realize we 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 were not ready. Yeah. So so uh, one excuse that, that a lot of people use. Uh, is privacy, um, yeah. and, and we have privacy laws in this country. Um, what do people like privacy commissioners and, and, and those sort of people that are that are say charged with with uh, looking after us in that regard? Um, are, are they helpful at all to, to people like yourself who are journalists? Yes, the argument around privacy is a pretty thin one because. Um, where you'll have one health unit say we cannot give any information about the deceased due to privacy, you'll have a, a health unit right next door giving that information in an exact, exactly similar case. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, sorry, whose privacy is more, like, is, has better privacy controls? Is it a unit that is actually saying the information while protecting someone's information so that, that they don't personally become exposed? Or is it the location that says, oh, someone has died and we can't tell you anything about that person? So in British Columbia, um, the, the the units have not reported the health units have not reported deaths within long-term care. For, uh, sorry, within hospitals, if those deaths are lower than five people, and that's a common thing that a lot of health units will do in Canada. Of course, the problem is once you aggregate that, you have this missing hole of dozens and dozens of deaths that you can't mm. place anywhere because you don't know if that number was one or you don't know if that number was four. Right. And is there a difference between a single person dying from COVID in hospital and four people dying from the same outbreak in hospital? And I think that there is, and I think I think most Canadians would agree that there is. And so, you know, there's ways to protect people's privacy, which is, of course, important, um, while also ensuring that Canadians have the information that they need to understand what's really happening in this pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, privacy became a justification, I think, unfairly for a lot of, of the information not coming out. Right, right. Um, one of the, the things that you look at, look at at the book is is, is the, the state of long-term care in Canada. I mean, uh, even before COVID, we, we've known, regardless of what province one is in, it's not a terribly good system. Um, so one wonders to skip ahead here if if um, we know how bad it's been and, and, and we, we've seen how many deaths have occurred you know in provinces like Ontario it's happened here in Vancouver as well um, do you think good change might come about or, or are we back to the same if you will back to normal yeah that's a really important question and I think the, the most um, significant indicator of whether or not something will change is are there people organizing to force politicians to make those changes? I think that if a politician is not forced to make any changes, it doesn't matter how many people die as a result of something. They will not change anything. If that, if, if those deaths don't threaten, like, the, the norm, the status quo. Uh-huh. And so we just finished this year and a half, almost two years, of um, mass deaths within residential care, and a lot of those deaths were related to lapses, as you say, that were, that were long before identified. And, you know, I'm in Quebec, where people were dying because 
certain long-term care facilities didn't even have oxygen because they weren't set up to have oxygen because mm-hmm. that's not how they were supposed to operate. And then when the hospitals start sending people into long-term care, uh, needing like like higher level care, people were dying because of a lack of oxygen or a lack of, of, of respiratory support. It's, it was just horrific. Um, I don't think that information in and of itself is enough to push any government into action. But there also does have to be a better collection of, of information as well. You know, our province is going through a coroner's inquiry, and the ombudsman has just released her report into what was known and what was not known at the start of the pandemic. Both of those uh, exercises are leading to uh, cries for a public uh, inquiry mm. because it is quite damning to see what officials were aware of and how they did not take action at the beginning of the pandemic, where most Canadians were led to believe, you know, politicians were doing their best. They weren't sure. It was also confusing. And of course, it was confusing in a weird time. But I think that if we don't have these kinds of public accounting for what happens, there's even less chance that anything's going to change um, that needs to change. And um, the, the system in which um, all of this flourished, I mean, we all know the stories of what happened in Ontario and people profiting um, with regards to long-term care. Yeah. Um, the, the lack of regulation um, itself, um, I guess this has to go province to province, doesn't it? It's not something the federal yeah. government can do, can, can they? Well, the federal government has certain powers that they could use that would be politically difficult uh, in terms of popularity, not in terms of the Constitution. Mm. So we went through a whole pandemic, and the government didn't once invoke the Emergencies Act. And one of the things that I was shouting about from the sidelines was, why didn't we have the Emergencies Act triggered so that the federal government could demand uniform data? Something as simple as that. But often when the Emergencies Act got mentioned, it was like, oh, no, overreach, you know, Section 92 of the Constitution, you can't do that. As if there was nothing in between completely taking over every province's system of long-term care and, you know, trying to uh, provide frameworks to allow for uniform and consistent standards or data collection or whatever. Um, But you're right that it is a a provincial matter, and and each province has uh, its own way of managing long-term care. But a lot of the operators cross provincial borders, and the problems from province to province are not that dissimilar. I think Quebec and Manitoba are real outliers because of of the number of public institutions within the mix of their facilities. Um, and so that that is that is different than you know being dominated by private for-profit facilities, which is Ontario and in Alberta certainly are, mm-hmm. and British Columbia of course has a lot as well. And a lot of the owners own facilities in BC and Alberta, and right. so they're doing things very similarly, uh, even if regulations might be slightly different from from location to location. So. Um, you know, when we're looking at healthcare in Canada, yes, it's a provincial responsibility, but we do have national standards under the Canada Health Act, and that's that's a really important principle. It, it, it imagines that a, a Canadian located in Surrey is going to have the same access to healthcare as a Canadian located in Fredericton, mm. and the, why that wouldn't apply to long-term care. I, mean, I don't, you know, it doesn't make any moral sense, any yeah, yeah. jurisdictional argument. But the reality is that. Um, that it is, it, there's a lot of things about the system, like the, the profit motives that really drive down care, both in the, the for-profit system, but also in the not-for-profit public systems as well. And unless we can take profit out of 
administering like end of life care, of course we're going to continue to see corners get cut because at the end of the day they're accountable to their shareholders before they're accountable to the families that they serve. So the the, the um, effect of of the pandemic on say marginalized people. Um, it really split open a lot of these things that I guess we, we turned a blind eye to. A lot of us, I should say, turned a blind eye to um, its effect on the handicapped uh, minorities, the indigenous especially. Um, we don't talk nearly enough about inequality in this country, and so I think um, the, the media has has a, a, a tremendous part to play in in how that's happened. Um, yeah. So, so you, you talk uh, in the book about the media's part in all of this. Um, uh, what have you found in terms of, of um, because you, you, we'll talk about the corporate media in just a second, you know, the private media owned by large corporations. But but in terms of public broadcasting, do, do you think they have done a better job or, or than, say, the, the people in, in, in private media? Mm-hmm. I would not say that, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that they're operating under similar pressures, um, mm. but I want to back up just a little bit. Sure. I think it's really important to, to state very clearly that, yes, disabled Canadians were hit the absolute hardest by this pandemic, and it was disability by age and then not by age. And oftentimes journalists talked only about age, and then rather than even talking about disability, they started to talk about comorbidity, so these underlying health issues that might make someone more susceptible to getting COVID and, and having a severe outcome. And disabled activists have been, you know, shouting and making arguments and trying to insert themselves in mainstream discussion, and journalists just didn't listen. Like, they just didn't feature them. They, they didn't have them on as experts. Politicians certainly did not listen to them. The federal government only offered disabled people $600 in a lump sum, in one, two lump sums, and $300 sums. Um, and these were people who had like not only the, the direct experience of living through the pandemic with needing more PPE and experiencing personal care workers that all of a sudden have to limit their movements, uh-huh. which of course cut down on their care, but also are people who are experts in infection control and social distancing and all of the things that Canadians had a crash course in in March. And I think that that's a really great example of where journalists did fail. And as they say, this is not... I, didn't, I, I wouldn't say that CBC was uh, a better uh, media outlet than, than, than Rogers-owned or Bell-owned co- companies, um, other than they have a bigger spread. This is the national broadcaster, so they are mandated and therefore operate in small markets, right? I would not have an English-language radio station in my city if it wasn't for the CBC, because mm. uh, I live in Quebec City. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many English speakers here. But... Um, the CBC did not receive any public funding, which was very different than the private uh, corporations, which is ironic, being the public yeah. broadcaster. So they received no uh, emergency funding, they didn't receive the wage subsidy, and they were expected to do um, you know, multi-platform journalism with fewer resources than ever before, while you know, their journalists were literally broadcasting from their living rooms, right? Yeah. So um, I think that, that the CBC is a very interesting case for, like, that should have been part of a pandemic response, that government should have plowed money into the CBC to be able to make sure that there was broadcasting happening, that they had the money to hire people on it, like very quickly to do local journalism. And, and that didn't happen at all. And instead you had, you know, Rogers and Bell both getting more than $100 million in the wage subsidy and still reporting very high profits. 
Uh, I want to get back to the media in just a sec, but but you you brought up something I was going to talk about later, but but um, since it's 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 up now, um, uh, Serb, the emergency wage subsidy, um, uh, programs like that, um, it, it really uh, um, d- disappointed a lot of people, angered a lot of people, because the money was there all all along to help mm-hmm. the people that needed it. And and um, you know uh, welfare rates never went up uh, when they should have. Um, it, it, it 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 must have been really frustrating to see this happen. What well, <laughs> yeah. was it for you? Um, yes, I mean frustrating for me is not the right word, but definitely it was frustrating for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like yeah 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 as we've been saying as we've been saying as we've been saying the money is is, is there. Um, but you're right. Like they they were offering people two thousand dollars a month, which is more that you'll get much more than you'll get on social assistance for disability supports in any region in this country. Yeah. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, people who've been advocating for more financial supports find themselves saying, "Oh, so it was just political will this whole time." And 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 um, back to the media now, the, with all these billions that have been been um, passed on, especially the wage subsidies to to corporations and the sort, mm-hmm. the sort of scrutiny that that um, that needs isn't happening no. uh, on the part of the media, is it? No, no, and it, and partly I think that that's because you know journalists chase what government's doing. And so government made a big deal about scrutinizing CERB recipients. Um, businesses made a huge deal about CERB recipients being yeah. lazy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so journalists followed the story there. Meanwhile, the bigger sum of money was the wage subsidy. And, you know, I don't know if you, uh, if you uh, had to coordinate the wage subsidy, but I did for my organization, and I know how little we had to actually prove the need that we had. We just had to report. We were never audited. We were never, no one ever followed up with us. I never received a call from CRA. And I imagine, based on media reports, that that was the case for pretty much everybody that received the wage subsidy. So the biggest uh, outrage that people had, uh, there were two big outrages related to the wage subsidy. One was that, you know, a lot of corporations that got it were then able to still pay out their shareholders, as if the program didn't allow for that. Mm. The program didn't say that you had to have zero profits. The program said you had to have a drop in your profits. And so very profitable corporations, including Extendicare, uh, who had been in the business of long-term care provision, uh, where there had been mass deaths, were able to receive the wage subsidy and it not at all violate the policies that the government had set up uh, around it. And the second uh, thing that people were very outraged about was that some, you know, very questionable groups got money. So, like, you know, one neo-fascist organization (laughs) got money. But, again, like, there was no scrutiny at all. So how in the heck would CRA figure out who is behind what organization when you're applying for it? All you had to do was a test. Um, And so when you compare the ease with which corporations and, and, and groups like the one that I work for got money for the wage subsidy, versus the pain that individuals got, went through to get the CERB, and then, of course, the poorest ones weren't even eligible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was night and day, and it just demonstrated who was more important in the eyes of government. It certainly wasn't people. It was making sure that the economy ran as normal as possible, and everything about the pandemic response was oriented towards that. Yeah, that's a, that's a frustrating part. It's an ongoing <laughs> part, and it's, it, it's still part of your work. Uh, 
day to day. Um, yeah. In terms of the media's role in in mixed messaging, because because that's a part of the book that I, I found both interesting, fascinating, and frustrating. Um, it seems that that they relied on government officials too much, and so mm-hmm. critical information didn't get to us when it needed to, did it? No, it, exactly. Um, there was far too much stenography, and the problem with stenography was you, I mean, it should be kind of obvious that you don't want just journals reporting exactly what uh, officials say, although in some cases that was necessary because yeah. of the pandemic, hence the mixed messaging part, right? Some yeah. of it is really necessary to be just repeated, but a lot of that was also just broadcast to the websites as it was. And so journalism in a lot of parts of Canada on the day-to-day reporting, not on the investigations or anything like that, but on the day-to-day reporting, were just copying and pasting from a website that was mm. publicly available. And um, and so one of the things that I would notice is, like, in, uh, in Ottawa, in the Ottawa area, for some reason, no journalists, like, not from any of the outlets, it didn't matter the ownership, but they would never identify where people died, even mm. though you go to Ottawa Public Health and it's right there on their on their on their page. <laughs> it was like, mm. what is going on here? Whereas the exact same outlets broadcasting in other parts of Canada would always report where the deaths happened. So you had these very weird inconsistencies, and I think that the the like you know crisis management from the political side always passes through controlling the message. And one of the ways to control the message is to make it seem so dense and so difficult that journalists who are overworked and working under very bizarre circumstances, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, are going to fall back on the official line because it's the easiest thing to do. They won't get in trouble if there's a mistake. The mistake will be the fault of the officials, and it's right there, and it needs to happen anyway because a lot of this information does have to get to average people, and so they just fall back on repeating the official line. But... (laughs) Of course, there's a problem with that because the official line had a lot of problems with it. And journalists, uh, and I suspect it's, you know, this is not a journalist individual problem. This is like systems, managers and owners being okay with this, being like, no, no, just, just broadcast the days, uh, every day's update from Justin Trudeau. Um, and so, you know, in March and April, depending on where you were in Canada, you could have had your provincial government, or yet the federal government's update at one hour in Eastern Time is eleven o'clock, mm-hmm. followed by your provincial government's update at one o'clock. Mm-hmm. Twelve o'clock was responding to the federal, and two o'clock was responding to the provincial. <laughs> like, yeah. So it was a block of four straight hours of zero analysis because it was just repeating and 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 understanding what the official line was four hours of prime journalism every single day when we were all in lockdown listening for the first time in probably months or years mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just amazing how effective the governments were at controlling the message and that affects um, to this day um, the the information we're getting on vaccines and as you write in the book um, uh, sort of uh, too much space was was devoted to say the 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 anti-vax side of, of arguments rather than say uh, what we should have heard about is how, how vaccines actually work or how they're made, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had this um, eureka moment when I when I really understood um, mRNA technology, right? Yeah, this, yeah. this this wonderful um, part of these new vaccines. And, and just realizing, like, the incredible scientific advancement it really is and, and all of the possibilities it opens up for other kinds of vaccines, right? 
like skin cancer and malaria and HIV, like just like really amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I was shocked. I'm like, wait, why have I never heard journalists talk about this with the same kind of scientific excitement and then inquiry? What does this mean? How is it made? What's the what's been the the decade long process of like those stories were hived off to be kind of uh, cute incidental stories, like oh look at the woman who invented this, or oh look at the the, the business that that tried to develop this, rather than being the core part of the story. At the same time, you have the you know most mainstream journalists chasing phantom polls, and 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 you know we spent nine months asking Canadians, "Will you get vaccinated?" Before <laughs> there was even a vaccine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> obviously, an average person is going to either say, "Yes, I don't care. You can inject me with anything, make this go away," or "Are you are you kidding me? Like, what are you talking about? What are you going to inject me with? No way!" Like, that is not a useful intervention in public policy or discussion. And it was the literally dominant frame of the vaccine discussion. And then once vaccines got here, of course, journalists allowed politicians to make the vaccine our salvation. And so when it was clear that we weren't going to hit 100% vaccination rates, because, I mean, that would be impossible unless you literally mandated it from the federal government, Mm -hmm. then no one switched to saying, okay, then what do we, how do we manage to be unvaccinated? It became demonizing them for being the reason that COVID is still here. Like, you know, at some level there should have been, okay, like everyone who's unvaccinated, like, like, we hope you don't die. We hope that, you know, we hope you don't die. We hope you don't spread this to people. But beyond that, I mean, there is nothing you can do because there is no vaccine mandate. But instead, the obsession with with unvaccinated healthcare workers being the reason for why this entered the facility and then killed two other people. It's like, is that the reason or was the facility lax in its infection control? Mm. And we never heard that. We always heard about the number of unvaccinated staff and we never heard about the internal uh, facility controls. And I should say, when the first variant, the Alpha variant, popped up as being big news in Canada, it was around the Roberta Place outbreak in Barrie, Ontario. And journalists made that story all about the variant, even though in the middle of their catastrophic outbreak, the Ministry of Long-Term Care in Ontario had an inspection report that identified that the management was still not separating COVID-positive and COVID-negative residents, and were allowing COVID-positive residents to circulate in the facility. So you look at that and say, whoa, is this a variant? Or you look at that and say, Charlotte Health Services did not learn from the first 10 months of this camp of this uh, pandemic and and there's been you know almost 80 deaths at this facility no but journalists decided to go on the story with the variants and it was all in that perspective of but the vaccines here and the vaccine should be saving these people so why is it not oh it must be the variant yeah yeah i mean it, it's it, reading the book um i, I can't help but um well was shocked is one feeling that one goes through and mm-hmm. then uh anger um, and then frustration, and then at some point you just you, because we're going through it still day to day, um, just weariness, and and that's what I'm afraid of. That I'll feel that, or a lot of people will feel that, and I'm sure there are people who in this country who feel that already. Yeah, I I know, um, and and I have the benefit of having been staring at this stuff now very intensely for almost two years. That I I actually don't feel weary. I think that. Um, Canadians had an opportunity uh, or a crash course maybe in seeing all of the problems with how society is organized. Uh And 
I think that there are tremendous opportunities for us to reimagine Canadian society and ask some very difficult questions. While it's very clear that politicians of all stripes are not interested in actually, like, you know, working for people, they want to maintain the system that we have, even even if it's a system that leads to this level of mass deaths in a, in a moment of, of crisis. And so I think, you know, we have to fight against the weariness or against the depression or against the the, the anger. I mean, anger and frustration, those are all, you know, useful yeah. <laughs> emotions to yeah, feel. Yeah. But they shouldn't demobilize us because, like, we still live in a democracy. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, we still have power and levers that are accessible to us to force different kinds of political action. And this is where we need to call on civil society organizations, um, civil rights defending groups, Mm -hmm. unions, religious organizations, cultural organizations, and to really, like, say, hey, we need need your help. You have resources. You have members. You have access to communities. You saw this on the front lines. You saw how this ravaged racialized communities. You saw how this ravaged your workers in a poultry plant. We need you to step up and actually help organize us to force politicians to make changes. Because they will make changes if they're forced. Indeed. The question is, what does that force look like? Yeah. Nora, this is such an important book. It's an engaging one to read as well. I hope a lot of people read it. Um, congratulations on it, and, and uh, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. Thank you so much. The Twitter handle is at NoLore, and then the website, of course, is at uh, NoraLoretto.ca. The book is called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the uh, COVID-19 Pandemic. It's uh, from Fernwood Publishing. It's author Nora Loretto joined me on the line from, from Quebec City in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantin.